Hello, fellow innovators. This is Patrick Emmons, and welcome to the Innovation and Digital Enterprise Podcast, where we interview successful visionaries and leaders, giving you an insight into how they drive and support innovation within their organizations. I'm really excited about our guest today, Angel Mendez. For over three decades, Angel has brilliantly merged the worlds of software, the cutting edge of industry 4.0 tech, and practical industrial applications. From prestigious executive stints with global tech giants like Cisco Systems, where he masterminded their global supply chain and enterprise transformation, to his recent dynamic role as EVP and COO at Here Technologies. Angel's journey is nothing short of exemplary. While at Here, he spearheaded core business strategies, global operations, product management, and monumental corporate transformations. Let's not forget this journey began at the iconic GE, where he took on escalating roles from graduating from their esteemed manufacturing management program. Now in his current chapter, Angel serves as the executive chairman at Leva Data. Moreover, he offers his unparalleled expertise as an independent director for industry leaders like Peloton Interactive, Sleep Number, and Canaxis, while also chairing critical committees. But Angel's influence doesn't end in the corporate sphere. He's a beacon in the civic domain, leading boards like the Association of Governing Boards of Universities and Colleges, and making significant contributions to the Lafayette College Board of Trustees, P33 Chicago, and the Commercial Club of Chicago, as well as the Economic Club of Chicago. Originating from Cuba, Angel holds a BS in electrical engineering and an MBA. He's a testament to relentless pursuit, innovation, and leadership. We're excited to have him with us. We're going to dive in and explore the tough aspects of doing the hardest things in innovation and digital transformation. Welcome to the show, Angel. Thank you, Patrick. It's an honor to be with you. I've been paying quite a bit of attention to your podcast series, and it's an honor to be part of your guest list. Awesome. Thank you. It's an honor that you're listening to the show. That's fantastic. If you don't mind kind of kicking it off, share with our listeners a little bit more about yourself, what you're currently up to, and then I've got some questions about entrepreneurialism and and that to kind of jump in deeper. Sure. Well, again, thank you for that thorough introduction. I think you covered this quite well. These days, I run a portfolio of activities in my life, ranging, as you mentioned, from chairing a up-and-coming, fast-growth AI company to serving on three public boards and uh, trying to keep up with my civic interests as well, both on the higher education segment as well as in the civic development segment. You mentioned, for instance, P33 Chicago, an organization that has uh, quite active trying to focus on the Chicagoland and trying to raise its profile, raise its effectiveness as a tech center, thus driving growth and inclusive economic development. So quite busy with a portfolio of things. It's a bit different than being a full-time executive for a global company in that, you know, when you're doing that, obviously your head's down with uh, one company and one organization trying to make things happen around the world. In my current role, I get to touch uh, a variety of things ranging from Connected Fitness Company, which is making a journey uh, through a turnaround all the way to the transformation of Sleep Number to uh, the growth of Kinexis, where the supply chain space, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about, is growing and changing dramatically. What they all have in common is, is a great mission. I care an awful lot about mission-driven companies and mission-driven people. 
And they're all in some state of change, right? In some cases, growing or coming back or transforming its operating model. I love transformation. I love the things that teams can do during a transformation and leading through those problems in the very volatile world that we live in. So that's what I've been up to uh, in my spare time, trying to not age too fast. (laughs) (laughs) It's a problem that I think we're, uh, we're all faced with at a certain point. Indeed, indeed. Maybe we'll dig into that, too, because there's a lot of attention around longevity or even age reversal is a a growing market. When you think about the demographics that we're faced with, where it's going to be some, I don't know, dispensable capital is going to be potentially. So it's an interesting market unto itself. One of the things I want to do to kick this off, because really uh, your background and everything you've accomplished, I talked to a lot of entrepreneurs and innovation minded folks. I'm always curious, when did you realize that innovation, building companies was going to be what you wanted to do with the rest of your life? Is there a point in time? Was there an event, something that created that epiphany of like, I really like this and I don't think I should? Well, my upbringing, as you noted in the introduction, was very straight corporate focused, right? I had the chance to join an academy company, as I like to say, and that was GE back in the early 80s through the early 90s, where the company was experiencing a great degree of growth and change under Jack Welch, went on to Allied Signal, again, a global, is now Honeywell, as you may know, a global manufacturer of automotive and airspace and engineered material products at the time. And then I spent some time in banking, but those first 20 plus years were quite formative around leadership, around operations, around engineering, around general management. I think it was when I arrived in Silicon Valley in the year 2000, where I became much more in tune with the world of innovation, the world of startups, the world of growing companies. In fact, it was slightly before that, while I was at City, I found myself blessed, really, with the opportunity to join a team that was asked to go to Silicon Valley for an extended period in time and study companies and bring those learnings back to Citigroup. And uh, in that experience... I was going through it in 1998, 99. Little did I know that I was two years later going to be working in Silicon Valley, where I spent the next 18, 19 years. I still work quite a bit today with Levadata. I got a real sense for the world of founders, the world of startups, the world of raising money to grow companies, the world of failure. One has to remember a lot of what happens in this space is trying and trying and failing and trying again. And there are many, many stories lessons from that innovation process. And so I think it was then, I think. And then, of course, uh, when I joined Cisco in 2005, Cisco, as part of his operating model still today, in fact, just this morning, they announced a very large acquisition. I saw that, yeah. I think the largest, right? The largest of all time. Yeah, very large. So congratulations to Chuck and the team there bringing on Splunk, but very acquisitive during that time. So I was able to, again, to, to as an executive who had some responsibilities for integrating some of these acquisitions and being part of the senior leadership team there. Again, got another real interesting sort of laboratory in which to learn the world of startups. And then I got interested as an individual, as an angel investor and as a participant. So it's very much part of my life today. I want to allocate capacity and my time and interest to that space. And that's why I got more deeply involved with a young company like Levadata while simultaneously trying to shift my life to public and private board service and uh, profit board service. So I find it remarkable. I find founders to be really, really interesting people. 
and I'm blessed to have coached uh, one or two of them along the way. Awesome. And uh, your time at Cisco, uh, you know, you shared with me before, it's not like you acquired a couple companies, right? <laughs> yeah, we acquired some, at least 30, 40, 50 companies in the time, the 10 years, almost 11 years I was there. I used to joke that it was a bit like background music, right? Like you jump on an elevator and there's music <laughs> playing. You know, we were always in that space. We assigned some great talent to it, both from a business development perspective as well as from an integration perspective. And that allowed the company to really rely, actually. Uh, and, and we can talk about that playbook, if you will, within the larger context of driving innovation and driving acceleration of revenue. But yeah, and, and a good number of them were small. But some of them, like Scientific Atlanta and others, were much larger, which we leveraged to enter new markets. So a very interesting process. And still today, what are the goals of the transformation that has been going on at Cisco since 2011 has been to take that company, which was a hard, a very respected and very successful hardware manufacturer, obviously service along with the hardware, a dominant player in the networking space to really leverage their business model around recurring revenue. And we started that process back then. I'm super interested in seeing how it's continued to expand and grow under Chuck Robbins' leadership. And this morning, I saw him on Squawk Box, and they're up to nearly 50%, I believe, uh, of revenue after they settle in on the Splunk uh, integration. That's recurring revenue. That's terrific for them. That's a great change in a company that's been long in the making and, and they continued on that path. So, so uh, yeah, M&A has been a, a real interesting part. I did some of that in prior lives as well and uh, at Honeywell and other places, but Cisco was really the academy for me. We talked a little bit about uh, some of the more important lessons that you learned through that decade of acquisition and how to create innovation as a process. So you said the playbook, lessons learned. I don't, is that the same thing? Well, what I remember the playbooks involved in scouting the landscape and spending time understanding upcoming technologies and disruptions and really staying ahead, if you will, of technology transitions, as the, the then CEO, John Chambers, used to say, and then how to execute those integrations well so that when the companies were acquired, they fell into the fabric of the company in as efficient a way as possible. And a lot of the perceived benefits or planned benefits of an acquisition can often get lost in the integration if you don't do it properly. So, and they're like any other place, right? There were some ones that went on super well and ones that were more complex. The innovation as a process lesson came also from a time at Cisco where we were really studying the richness, if you will, of our future revenues and how our R&D expenses were positioning us for that future revenue realization. And one of the things we learned is that there was quite a bit of opportunity in juicing up, if you will, the innovation of the company outside of M&A as a vehicle for increased revenues. And as we looked ahead in time horizons, and this is true for many companies I've come to learn, oftentimes you have research and development that is well-funded, but it's producing ideas and products that will recognize revenue, say, between one and three years. And you may have some other things in the lab that may be in that five to 10-year horizon, maybe some moonshots or some really radical disruptions. But as you think further down the path, you need to have longer time horizons in mind so that you have a portfolio that is well-balanced. In other words, your investments are both targeted to the near-term, mid-term, and long-term. So we studied a lot of different companies 
and how they went about innovating. And when we took away a number of lessons, one, that it is a process. You know, a lot of companies think of innovation as some kind of magic trick. You know, you put a bunch of smart people in a room and there's this abracadabra moment where, boom, an idea is born. When in reality, it doesn't really work that way. But for sure, one thing we learned as we studied 20, 30 companies that we perceive to be good benchmarks for us, we learned that companies that innovate well and consistently have the attitude of what I used to call taking many shots on goal. They work with startups. They have internal incubators, perhaps. They have clearly very strong R&D. They have perhaps M&A as part of their toolkit. So you have to take multiple shots all the time because it's one in 10, right? Sometimes one in 10 great ideas or great acquisitions hit the real jackpot. So the more balls you have in the air, the better. And you have to think of it as a process. There are people who run around feeling, and, and I take a strong issue against this, who think of, you know, don't over-process innovation because if you if you lay too much process on it, you'll scuffle the creativity. And that is a bit too generic for me as a management strategy. I think you certainly don't want to bury smart teams with lots and lots of bureaucracy when you want them to be disruptive internally. But at the same time, you have to regulate them. The other concept, this came from here, technologies, we were really struggling to grow our core business. And one of the things that worked for us there is we put in a process to to really invite every single employee to be an innovator. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that sounds easy to say, mm-hmm. but you have to facilitate that with resources and tools. For instance, we installed some software that allowed employees to really submit ideas and build on other ideas or others' ideas And before you knew it, when combined with a really thoughtful sort of white sheet of paper innovation process, we had three, four hundred million dollars, euros actually, of future revenues that we had enabled. So I believe that every employee, no matter where you work in a company, should be considered an innovator, not just a small group of really smart scientists or engineers. So... There's a couple of concepts I'd like to dig a little deeper in. One, I do like the right sizing of the process around innovation, but also, you know, that entrepreneurial journey. Many have begun it. And I don't know if there's a statistic or numerical justification of like what those outcomes have been. My observation has been it's had a limited success. And not to say you can't learn from those types of situations. But what was the most important thing that you learned that maybe as you started that process that you wished you had started sooner or maybe something you wish you hadn't done at all? Yeah. Well, I can tell you this. In in the Here Technologies example that I was just talking about, Mm -hmm. one thing I wish I had done, first of all, it was we were in a multi-year transformation. I think we turned on the intensity of innovation about a year in, in my tenure, so 2017, and a half or so. And I wish I had started sooner because, again, the richness of what came from our employees, that organic innovation was incredibly critical. The other thing that took us a bit to sort of organize around was really joining big initiatives. For instance, in Chicago, the City Tech Collaborative was an organization we joined as a partner along with Accenture and Microsoft and others who were focused on smart city technologies and how to use the city of Chicago as a lab, for instance, 
Well, there's nothing more rich than putting a bunch of smart people on in an initiative like that to actually be in vitro, working real problems, and then coming back to the shop and saying, wait a second, this stuff we've been doing over here, it sounds great, but it doesn't really work in the wild, right, in a real world. So a combination of tactics is needed, both the what I call the, the practical application of some entrepreneurial disruptive employees that are not just in blue skyland in the office thinking out good ideas, send them out where the real problems are, put them out in the field, bring that genius to the reality of the problem and good things can happen. Organize to bring organic innovation growth by empowering employees and giving them the chance to participate in that process, no matter where they are in the world. I'll give you one or two examples in a second. And at the same time, run a playbook when you're actually looking at your markets Looking at the direction of technology, we partnered with, uh, you probably know Tom Kosmarski mm-hmm. and his team, yep. and Tom helped us really think about, from the bottom up, how to imagine location services, which is here's main you know set of products, and location technology in places that we hadn't really thought about too much, like app tech, for example, in other areas. But again, we hovered over it by building an innovation program management office. Now, some people would say, well, that's too much process. Well, the reality is, is that we were watching what was working, what was not working. You also have to have the discipline of turning things off when they start to look like they're bowling ball shining exercises. There are times where you fall in love with your own stuff. And if after a certain period of time, you're not generating benefit, move on. And that is a very hard series of things to do, particularly when you're seeing some really, really smart people work really, really hard on interesting ideas. At the end of the day, it's got to have a line of sight to a real problem that can be solved with a real product, a real service that you can commercialize. And if that isn't visible to you, shut it down. The example I was going to give you is we had 6,000 employees in India, very much still there, focused on map production, typically young demographic, some engineering grads, some computer science grads. We were, in effect, a early career entry path for many of these young folks. We had always thought of it as a production center. It had not been thought of it as an innovation center. And by some applying some modest investment and effectively liberating them and saying, look, I'm not coming in here to pay for your hands-on keyboard capabilities. I want your brain, your heart, your soul, and your commitment. And we gave them some space in their day to think about good ideas. And holy cow, they kept flying in. And all of a sudden, we had a a lab shooting off ideas and products to our product management teams in Berlin and Chicago and other places that were fascinating to me. So there's a number of things. You have to juggle a number of tactics. Entrepreneurship is an interesting word, right? I think we gave birth to a company internally founded by who was then our chief HR officer, which was a fascinating idea that came from within. company was later incorporated with here. That's his principal investor. It was then rolled off as a private company and ServiceNow acquired it not, not long ago. Uh, Kelly wow. Stephen Ways, founder of that company, is now still at ServiceNow leading the charge. And that was a completely adjacent business. We were using the capabilities internally, but it wasn't a location services business per se. It was it was a skills management company, and you could see it as a as a totally different animal, but it was born out of some real smart people saying, hey, you know what? This could be a company. Why don't we work towards that goal? So again, being open-minded, but process-driven at the same time, it's sort of that yin and yang that I think makes innovation work. And we saw this at work, by the way, in other companies. 
But the single trick, the abracadabra trick, isn't going to always work unless you get very, very lucky. That's awesome. You mentioned um, falling in love with your own stuff, right? <laughs> and uh, I really like the idea of like uh, one on the doing the internal innovation, giving them a real problem. I do think that's that's a big gap I see with a lot of folks. The leaders are looking inward a little bit too much and not giving them a, a problem set, right? Or like, here's something that's a problem we're trying to solve and use it more as a, a secondary opinion. But, you know, that falling in love with your own stuff concept, uh, I think, is is a big issue when you don't, you know, founders and entrepreneurs, they own the business. You can be brave when you don't have to report to somebody. How do you create that awareness, right, for folks as they're going through this and, and they're looking at, hey, we could do this or we could do that and get them to, I would say, see the eyes from the outside, right, of like, is this something somebody's ever going to value? I don't want to use the term buy because that's a different story, but I do think, is it something people are going to value outside of this very narrow scope? So is it something that you've seen? Is that something? Oh, no, I have. Hey, you're spot on. We had a board member at Here Technologies, Yuri uh, Levine, who had a t-shirt on a lot, and the t-shirt said, fall in love with the problem. You know, and, and it was a, a way to address your point, right? You get fall in love with the solution mm. and you get disconnected from the problem. I think the number one thing, and this is going to sound academically basic, and it kind of is, but oftentimes people don't do it, is to be careful on two dimensions. One, how customer exposes your team. That you've got to be out there in customer land at the junior levels, not just with your sales force or with your customer support teams. Engineers and product managers need to live in the land of the customer or the land of the prospective customer and start with value propositions that are described when you start trying to justify investments and internal business cases and the cases for change, et cetera, that come to people like myself as COO and my peer group, CFO, et cetera, to fund. They need to emerge from the customer. Too often, too many technology companies suffer from the technology out syndrome, right? I have this great technology idea because it's possible and it's breakthrough. And therefore, I got to invent it, fund it, build it, and then go find a customer for it. Now, every now and again, and it could be an abracadabra moment, holy cow, you imagine in 2004, three, that we would have even thought about all of what we're doing with our iPhones today. That was a company seeing the future and making it available and teaching, if you will, the market, the possibilities, and then opening up an ecosystem of innovation that has exploded over the years. Well, every now and again, something like that happens, right? A, a product is launched. Steve Jobs used to say, maybe in a lifetime, you get to work on one of those. Right? So it's rare. It's fun when it happens, but it's rare. The majority of innovation, successful innovation, is rooted on someone really understanding a market problem. As simple as that. And again, guarding against the temptation of staying too long trying to fund the technology for technology's sake is even in the face of evidence that you're not fulfilling a gap or that someone might be filling that same gap differently and better than you is a common disease. And it's a question about how do you, you, know, you need to stop it. It is very, very hard. Well, and ironically enough, I just rewatched that uh, when they had the big presentation around the iPhone and literally, I think I went, 
he did it like five, six days ago. Because it, it is such an interesting, what has it been? That's 2007. It's been, what, 15 years, right? 16 years. That's right. That's right. What a, what That's a right. huge, huge impact. And like, even though we were there, I was reminded of the realities of how contrarian this platform strategy, everybody's focused on security, right? Everybody's focused on, and the amount of time it was in, called an email machine, and not just by Steve Jobs, by Palmer. Well, look, I lived that transition. I was at Palm as head of operations when we were building a Palm Pilot and the company had struggled and I joined along with others to drive the turnaround. And we transitioned it from the standard Palm Pilot, which many, many people had. You and I have probably <laughs> uh, enough gray hairs on, on our head or no hair in my case to remember that into the wireless space. And it's important to remember that the iPhone wasn't particularly the first smartphone. You know, the Trio was there. We were building it. You know, BlackBerry, the email machine was BlackBerry, right? right. They they understood that email was a killer app then. I reminisced with some former colleagues about the Palm OS, which had incredible capabilities. You could write Excel spreadsheets. You could run travel software. You could do mapping. You could do a number of things. For lots and lots of reasons, those things didn't quite make it in competition with Apple. And uh, that's a whole other podcast. But <laughs> I was explaining to our 10-year-old here. Well, let me back up. I have the last Trio 650 ever made because I used to run those factories and someone gifted it to me. And the keys were on the outside. And you remember, it's just like BlackBerry, the click, 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 click. It was mm -hmm. a thing, right? You remember that when the iPhone was launched, it was soft keys. Right. And they came up with a clicking sound just to satisfy that customer addiction for clicking on the keyboards. And everybody said, it's never going to work. It's never going to work. And what they achieved, of course, was a much larger real estate of glass onto which put further for the capabilities down the road. And today, we don't think about it because we invoke the keyboard when we need it. But when you're watching a video or when you're watching a map or reading a map or whatnot, that's not in your way. So they were able to optimize the customer experience to run on all these applications while at the same time not giving you a television screen in order for you to interact with. So there are a lot of really subtle things that have evolved over time. But I'm impressed more by the way you run your life, right? I mean, your banking, you you name it. I, I mean, obviously, yeah. people who are listening know all that. But an amazing transition over time, but paid a lot of attention to the customer and what the customer needed. One of the things that really, from your comment before, I was thinking about is just one of the other competitors in that space was the Windows smartphone, right? where their user interface had a start button because that's what they had on their operating system. And you want to talk about falling in love with your own stuff. Yeah. And one of the things that Apple did that was just, again, like you bring up the keyboard unto itself, but like not trying to sell your current crap on the new thing. Yeah. That's what Windows, I think, dropped the ball on, not recognizing, hey, nobody wants Microsoft Windows on the phone. Right. And to your point, Compaq used to make a PDA. Dell was branding a PDA at the time, all Microsoft-centric. This is before they became phones. They still had the same problem. They were trying to effectively retrofit the Microsoft OS onto a much smaller device and, and somehow make it work, as opposed to what Palm and BlackBerry had done up until then, which was to really organically develop a device and have the OS be built in such a way that it optimized around screen size and around mm -hmm. the user experience. And so that is effectively a core business 
innovation dilemma or innovators dilemma mm -hmm. manifesting itself into the front of new products, which is problematic. And by the way, it happens all the time. And what's interesting now is that there are almost infinite combinations, right, between product, software, hardware, the ability to enable capabilities, turn them off, turn them off, subscribe to certain things, but not others. The intersection, which is really where I, I lift my interest is, I'm so fascinated by it, the intersection of the business models with what the technology can enable has really grown, if you will. The capabilities have expanded dramatically across many, many products, allowing you to then now with the advent of AI to really bring a whole series of capabilities to markets and customers is really second to none. You know, stupid examples like your washing machine being Wi-Fi enabled allows you to affect your lifestyle because you can turn it on from wherever you are, turn it off and optimize your power usage at home. I mean, there's a, a number of things that are all coming from the intersection of hardware, software, and business models that can then be implemented on top of, of that intersection. So in a very quick amount of time, you can be using as a consumer some really terrific capabilities. So I'm curious, I know we're pivoting a little bit away, but I think it's a good segue into future 10x massive unicorn level businesses. It used to be owning the whole world, right? Like you had to own everything. And from what you're saying, it sounds like capability, not so much control, is that that intersection, like you can bring value and not own the whole value. Do you think that's going to be critical for some of the, the future businesses to not think in like me only mentality, but like, hey, I've got to leverage these other business partners. We all have to succeed or other people. I think there's plenty of evidence now of platforms and ecosystems becoming more valuable to Wall Street than standard product businesses or standard service businesses. You're starting to see that attitude permeate across some products that were, if you will, beachheads or islands by themselves. Mm -hmm. One of the areas that is probably most prevalent on this is in the automotive industry. I happen to be in the market for a car. I was looking at some number of models recently, and I've been fascinated by what some of the car companies are doing to bring the ecosystem of services into the vehicle. These are services they don't provide. They just simply enable them in the vehicle. Tesla, of course, has been doing that with their infotainment system for a bit, from gaming to search to video to any number of things. But I just took a look out of Volvo, for example, and in their new electric series that's coming out next year, you're basically walking into a service console. You're not walking into a vehicle that you just start and turn on a, your radio and your information system and your map and carry on about your business. And this is with the Googles of the world and the apples of the world, who then bring on their ecosystem onto that platform. And really what you're dealing with is yet another place, another device that can enable your life, whether that be transacting a parking spot ahead of your route, <laughs> or whether that be watching a movie in the back seat while your kids are getting restless, or whatever the case may be. This has been going on for a while. This is not yeah. new. It's, it's in the process now for arguably six, seven years. But it is remarkable what these ecosystems can do to a standalone product. And some of it is exaggerated. Every now and again, I say, wait a minute, am I really going to use all that technology on this product, right? 
So it can be a little bit overwhelming, but to your point, platforms, and there's hundreds and hundreds of platform or businesses that call themselves platform businesses, mm -hmm. where in theory, you are interacting with other capabilities through APIs and other ways, right? But to your point, you can't just go at it alone. Every business that I know I'm involved in almost is in that ecosystem, partnering engagement capability. It's huge. Yeah, you mentioned uh, securing parking in your car. It just blows my mind that I can reserve parking spot. And quite a few parking spots in Chicago pull up. I don't have to take the phone out. They scan your license plate and the gate opens on its own. It's insane. Because think about how many organizations have to collaborate to make that come true, right? Oh, yeah. Nobody, they don't own the parking garage. They don't own the application. They don't own the car. They don't own the phone. So there's at least four that I can identify of team organizations that had to collaborate in some way, shape, or form to make it possible for me to feel like I own my own parking spot downtown. Yeah. You talk about interesting companies where you got spare time, have a look at what's happening with Millennium Parking Garage, something you know, well, I'm sure from Chicago. MPG is a group on multiple structures, and you take this incredibly capable Millennium Parking Garage in down, down Chicago, I think it's one of the largest in the country, if not the largest, and turn it into the largest uh, electric vehicle charging location in the Midwest and probably in the country. And you talk to those guys, and they are very, very thoughtful about technology and how they can leverage an ecosystem to be more than just a stack of cement and really become integral to the advanced mobility future whether that be electric or driverless or both, and really becoming a player in that ecosystem. Now, think about that for a second. Against your point about ecosystems and partnering, I mean, in the past, that would have been a real estate play, right? Someone mm -hmm. come in, you know, grab a corner and build a garage and charge you when you come in and you come out. This is much more than that these days, and it's right there in Chicago. Awesome. I don't work over there, <laughs> so I'm going to have to find a reason to stop by. It has been a while, but yeah, it is massive. One of the things I wanted to talk about with these folks that you have leading the charge on innovation, what do you think is some of the characteristics? And I know I'm pretty much asking you to self-dissect yourself, really. It's like, <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> right, super handsome, smartest guy I ever met, you know, the usual. <laughs> Not either of those, right? Well, no I mean... Just between friends, right? Yeah, this, exactly. I'll this take what, it. This is what we do. Pump each other's <laughs> tires. That's that's our job. I'll take it. But like, when you see, what do you think? Like, who would you encourage? Because I do think these types of, I don't know, lifestyles, because innovation, entrepreneurialism, it's a lifestyle choice, right? There's no work-life balance. There's no rhythm to it. There's just a lot of like, trying things and, and being good with failure. And some people, they're better with it naturally. I think anything can be learned. I think immersion can solve a lot of problems. And if you're passionate about it and it's really what you want to do, I think anything can be learned. So for those that you would think are naturally inclined or people that would really like to develop these skills, what are some of the characteristics that maybe if you could identify like, hey, this is something that I think is critical to be either a learned or hardwired characteristic of people? Well, I think you touched on a couple of them. I have never been a founder myself, but I work with a number of them. I have one living in my house because my other half has been a founder. <laughs> and as part of P33, I work with people like Gary Cooper and others who are well-known founders in the Chicago area. And one of the companies I lead was founder-led for a long time, and he's still on our board. And 
So I think I have a general sense for the makeup of some of these folks. Look, I think you have to be incredibly passionate about what you're trying to create. Too often we think of these folks as being in it for the money. You know, I want to create something and I'm just going to go public and I'm going to become a gazillionaire and all of that. Well, of course, everybody has a dream of economic success. This is a capitalist country. People should dream to better themselves economically when they take on something like this. But it's often the case that that's not the driver. The driver is the passion for building something. And to your point about life balance or lack thereof, the commitment to seize or pause or do less of many other things because it becomes your single life's purpose to make that endeavor work. And that is a unique characteristic. Not everybody's wired that way. Not everybody has the courage or the risk tolerance or the right timing. The founder of Levadata had a pretty darn good job at Cisco Systems. He was a senior leader there. He was in my organization, so I don't know how much he got paid. He did fine. Good, solid job, but he dropped all of that. Mortgaged the house and turned into 401k and one founded a company, uh, largely bootstrapped at the beginning. This is the sort of behavior that founders exhibit, right? And they want to be able also to be free to make their own decisions. And there's a, so there's a certain level of independence and that comes with that risk-taking. That's why many, when acquired by larger companies, often don't stay because they fear lack of autonomy. Autonomy is the word that I want to attack founders with. They like that autonomy. They like that lifestyle. And they don't mind grinding it out. And it's humbling, right? That when you go out raising money, you're going to get more doors slammed in your face than not. So being able to explain yourself and be able to fail. I don't know if they still do it, but in Silicon Valley, there used to be an annual convention of to celebrate failure. I forget what it's called, fail.com or failure.com. And it was a gathering of founders. I called it high school. That's a... <laughs> <laughs> to talk about the lessons. And it's also a thick, thick skin. The ability to really operate from one day to the next off the seat of your pants sometimes, staring at a burn rate that may run you out of cash in 90 days and not fearing that, that is tremendous. And by the way, not for nothing, but the ability to sell your vision, right? To convince employees to join your parade when you got a cardboard box you're sitting on and a laptop and you're sitting on an incubator, you're sitting on a, an accelerator with little by way of revenue and you bring it on people, it takes some convincing. That's why a lot of these folks are incredible personalities and magnetic in their own way, even when they are single focused. So I have a lot of respect for people that do that and channel their energy that way. And boy, look at the results, right? We live in a technology centric world and Many of these companies have been founder-led, many immigrant founders, people that came to the U.S. with the promise of a better life and didn't mind putting their chips in that basket. Because it wasn't like they had faced bigger odds, right? That's right. Getting to this country was a really right big risk. So putting those chips on the table in comparison is kind of small, right? That's right. And to your point, there's a lot of people who don't take that dive because I've got a good job. I've got a good growth plan. Things are good. Now, conversely, when they are successful, and this is not easy to do for many companies, but serving as a director, you think a lot about succession planning, you think a lot about the longevity of the organizations you're a fiduciary of. It's important to be objective when it comes to when is it in the trajectory of a founder-led company 
that it's time to make a change at the top. If you've got a CEO who was the founder and the company's gotten larger and larger, and maybe that founder was more, his skills or her skills were more adequate in the earlier stages of the company, when do you say, okay, it's time for you to do something else? And it's a tricky time because you have to be empathetic about it. But it's often the case that if you don't make those changes, you don't bring someone with a broader set of skills and experience, the company will stall and you may not be able to lead through to the next stage. So that's another dimension of working with founder-led companies that is non-trivial. Those that are successful, how do you keep them growing? I mean, it's rare to see an early founder be the CEO 10, 20 years later in a company, right? I could be wrong on this, so check me on this if you know, but I think Larry Ellison may be the biggest example of a founder-led CEO that has been leading a company for many, many, many years. That's pretty rare. That's an oracle, of course. Yeah. And I don't think Bill Gates, if he was the CEO of Microsoft, it was a very short time frame. He did not want that role, right? He wanted to be out building products. Yeah. That's why Bomber came in, right? So it's a fascinating um, topic that I think drives the world. And now, boy, what a rich environment we're in, not to transition away from your agenda. But if you look at the world of AI and you look at the literally tens and hundreds of companies that are being born just in the last few years to focus on AI and AI capabilities, not just Gen AI, which is getting, of course, all the attention because it's sort of crossed the chasm, if you will, to the zeitgeist now, right? We're all talking about generative AI, but in general, it's just leading to that next S-curve, right? You've got this next set of technology capabilities that are going to bring God knows what levels of productivity and disruption and problems because technology shifts always bring challenges. And we know that AI is already concerning from a number of dimensions. We'll see the next thing and I'll be much older probably by the time it does, but quantum computing is another one. There are some bridging elements. Of, I read this morning that the folks at NVIDIA are super excited about some of their graphic processors also being able to run quantum computing algorithms. That's huge because now you're extending existing silicon to the quantum algorithm application. You don't have to wait for the quantum computer to be forklifted out of a lab somewhere in Argonne or someplace because these things are huge at the moment. If that's the case, then you're going to see an acceleration of quantum computing based on current silicon and then ultimately moving to the quantum physics of it. But boy, once you start getting into that, there's no telling what the heck problems that society will be able to address, whether it be in curing diseases or solving all kinds of urban problems or world hunger or you name it. I mean, what's coming down that path is really exciting. I also think if you roll the tape back to like 2012 and I said to you or you said to me, NVIDIA is going to be the hottest thing in 2023, I'd be like, you're on drug. Yeah. Yeah. They make video game cards. That's it. Like, big deal. Yeah. Well, if you said to me that the gaming industry was going to be larger than the music and Hollywood industries combined, I would have said to you, you were crazy. Yeah. But that is, in fact, the case today. Yeah, it's crazy. We do have to wrap. I uh, got it. There's like 900 more things I want to talk about. I know. We could talk about all kinds of stuff. I know. I do want to say thank you so much for coming on. Obviously, it's tremendously awesome for me just to have you on and have you share your experience, your wisdom. Wish you nothing but success. Would love to have you on again to continue some conversations because I do want to dig more into you and some of the things that make you capable of diving into these environments and being able to operate. Because you you mentioned, right, being an entrepreneur is hard. You got to deal with a lot of 
chaos and the comfort with discomfortability is just one of those things that I think all leaders must have. But I also think when you're trying to do innovation, it's, it's a, even at a higher scale. So would love to dig into that more again later on if you're open to joining us again. I'd be honored. Let's do that. Let's talk about uh, the revolution and digital transformation and and what's happening with supply chain specifically. That's a topic that's near and dear to my heart and a lot of the audience I know can relate to. Let's talk about entrepreneurship. Let's talk about innovation. Love to do it anytime. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you, Angel. Thank you so much for joining. And thanks to our listeners. We really appreciate everyone taking the time to join us. If you'd like to receive new episodes as they're published, you can subscribe by visiting our website at dragonspears.com slash podcast, or find us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was sponsored by Dragon Spears and produced by Dante32.